Uh, my wife was telling me right before I got up I was supposed to mention something, but I couldn't hear her. Oh, she already mentioned it. <laughs> okay, so um, the youth are headed home. Normally, um, my wife and I work with the youth, and then, and my wife's there, not there. And then her husband teaches here. Well, and then, uh, and then her husband typically teaches here. So it's kind of a switcheroo in that uh, we are not with the youth, and her husband is, and uh, I'm teaching here for whatever reason, for better or worse. So on that note, let's pray. Father, uh, we need you more than we know, uh, pretty much always. And I just ask that uh, we would come to know you better and, and know our need for you and know uh, how much you supply us in our need and, and in trial. And we ask for your presence here, for you to be building us up and for us to be growing together as we study your word together and also growing uh, with you as we study your word together. And I pray that we would keep our minds off of the blustery winds and the falling rains and all the circumstances around us and just focus on you for this time. Um, ask for your grace especially for, for words to speak and for um, communicating your word and um, and for people driving home from uh, Hume for uh, winter camp with the kids and the, the rough conditions. We ask for your watching over them too. We ask that all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to study the letter to the church of Smyrna. Uh, last time I taught, we studied the letter to the church in Ephesus. And uh, I'm going to read the letter and then we'll go through it uh, it's in Revelation chapter 2, if you have your Bible, or I'm assuming these guys are pretty good. It's probably, it's going to be up there. Um, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So, this passage is full of fun words. Uh, Tribulation, poverty, synagogue of Satan, devil is about to, death. And when I started studying it, I thought, what have I done? Why did I tell them I would teach that next time? Um, as some of you are probably thinking right now as I read through it, like, why are we studying this? Um, I don't have a great answer. But, no, it, I mean, everything in God's Word is really good. And it turns out this is really good. So I am excited to teach it. But it is full of very interesting words. It's very different from any of the other letters to any of the other churches. Uh, something to note about this church is that it's one of the two that Jesus only had good things to say, nothing bad. So seven letters to seven churches, and uh, two of them, he doesn't have anything bad to say about them. And this is one of those. So as we read through the situation they're in, what their lives are like, uh, keep that in mind. 
The other thing I want to say about Smyrna before we start going through, because it's relevant to really the beginning of the letter, is that Smyrna, the Christians in Smyrna, the church there was under persecution, unlike any other uh, church in Asia Minor and, and the Roman Empire at the time. Okay? And we'll get to the reasons why, but we need to know that they were under intense persecution as we start going through the letter. So I want to put that um, fact out there. So chapter 2, verse 8, starting to go through it, to the angel of the church in Smyrna. The word angel, it could be translated messenger. That's kind of the root meaning of it. Um, It seems reasonable that what Jesus is telling John here is that you are going to write this to the messenger of the church of Smyrna, whoever is delivering it to the congregation there, person that's carrying it there. Could also mean angel, uh, but... I tend to think this is a a messenger or maybe a pastor, somebody that would be presenting it to the congregation. He says, in Smyrna, right now, Smyrna, I know all of you know where that is, uh, but I'll tell you just in case. It is in modern-day Turkey. Uh, They called it Asia Minor back then. And it was on the eastern coast. No, I did it wrong last time. did it wrong this time. Western coast of Turkey. It's about 35 miles north of Ephesus. And it was, it was a very popular city. It had a port. It had trade in wine and myrrh. And it was actually an interesting city, partly because it was rebuilt by Alexander the Great. And so it had streets that were actually straight and you know, laid out relative to each other. And, um, and there's actually a city there today. It's modern day. It's called Izmir. If you wanted to see where Smyrna is, uh, you can find some ruins of the ancient city and then you know, a modern city. Jesus starts the letter to this city with the words of the first and the last. So he's going to describe himself at the start of the letter. And in every letter, Jesus' description is what that church needed to hear. And so the first thing Jesus says that the church in Smyrna under persecution needs to hear is that he's the first and the last. Now that's a phrase that God used in the Old Testament. Used it in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter Uh, 44 verse 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. He says it again in Isaiah 48 verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he, I am the first and I am the last. And when God is speaking those words through the prophet Isaiah, He is speaking to Israel at a time when idol worship is uh, very plentiful. There are idols everywhere, multitudes of idols. They found them in archaeological digs. They dig down to that time. This is around 740 to 700 BC, and they just find all these little idols that people built to worship. And God's message in those chapters was, look, that idol can't hear. It can't see. It doesn't understand. You had to make it with your hands. You you actually formed it yourself. And in order to worship it, you had to take it with your hands and move it somewhere and put it up on a little shelf so you could bow down to it. And, And God says, in contrast to that, I'm the first and the last. I didn't have a beginning. I wasn't made by human hands. I don't have an end. I'll be here for eternity. I'm eternal and greater than all of these idols in so many ways. 
That was God's message to the Israelites in telling them, I am the first and the last. Jesus' message to the church in Smyrna is that he is also the one true God. And a lot of the persecution and the pressure they're under was to worship other gods, in particular the Caesar. We'll talk about that later. But that pressure there was to worship false gods. And Jesus is saying, I am the one true God. Don't have a beginning. Don't have an end. I, you don't have to form a little image of me. Um, now, Jesus says uh, just a little more on Jesus not having a beginning. This, I love this verse. It's from Micah 5.2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, uh, specifies Ephrathah there because there were two Bethlehems and they wanted to make sure you knew that they were talking about the one Jesus was born in, uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And what this verse says is that Jesus' origin is not just from 4 BC, right, when he was born. It didn't start then. He actually started long before that. Like Jesus spoke about Abraham seeing his day. And then this verse talks about him being older than that. And as far as I can understand the Hebrew from this, it has to do with imagining a vanishing point. Like if you had an infinite road, you know, the farther away that road gets, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller in your vision. And pretty soon, it vanishes. And so the idea of this is you're supposed to think out to that vanishing point as far as you can see, and then he's beyond that. You know, that's how old Jesus is. That's without, without beginning, without end. And then also Jesus tells us, and this is important for the church of Smyrna, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he is the last in the sense that he will be with us off, to, off through eternity. Like we will spend past this life with him. He died around 30 AD, but that doesn't mark the end of him. You know, he was the first and the last, carries on, and we need to be reminded of that eternity and that we get to spend it with him. Um, his second, second uh, description of himself says, who died and came to life. And that's a reference to the crucifixion and the resurrection. Uh, the came to life there, it's, it's more of a point in time kind of thing. It's not a continuously lives. He describes himself as continuously living in the previous chapter. But, but this one is the death and the resurrection. So what he wants to remind Smyrna of is, one, that he died. Um, and it's important when you're under tremendous tribulation to be reminded that we have an example in Christ who was faithful all the way to death. And we need to be reminded that he came back to life. Death didn't have the final say. So if you stick it out with Christ, that's not the final say. Um, death is not the final say. You, you being alive with the Lord, the resurrection is the final say. And the church in Smyrna needed this reminder. Like They were experiencing, as Paul would put it, the fellowship of his suffering. But they needed to be reminded of the power of the resurrection that they would have. Um, and they needed to be reminded that the present sufferings weren't worthy to be compared to the glory that was to come. You know, Jesus had gone through this, and they needed to, to fix their eyes on him and remember that. Verse 9, 
Jesus says, I know. And it's interesting, he says those two words, I know, to all seven churches. And it is a reminder to us that God knows what situations we're in. He knows uh, that each church has different needs. He writes to these seven churches. He knows that Coastside has different needs than Lighthouse or New Life or Seaview. And that uh, we are all following the Lord together, but we are, we are all different. And really, he knows that in this room, we all have different needs. There's only one person like George in this room. There's only one Kara. Um, and that's not in a bad way. It's just that we are all very unique. This collection of people is incredibly unique. And it's easy for us to get our eyes onto another church and think, oh, we should do church just like they're doing it. Or to get our eyes onto other believers and say, oh, I should try to walk with the Lord, have a relationship the exact way they do it. And, and often with the underlying thought that if I do that, then God might bless it. He might bless me. But God, God's not looking for some form of godliness or some formula for a relationship with him. Uh, he wants to meet us where we are. He knows what situations we're in, just like he knew all of these churches. And he knows the pressure that we're under and the hardship that we're under, the fear and the anxiety that we experience, the joys that we go through. Like, he knows all of that. He sees it, he observes it, understands it. And in the midst of all that, he has plans for us, and he has appropriate encouragement and commendation and reminders of who he is, correction when we need it, uh, promises for our lives. And it's important for us to trust that he knows our situations, to trust him to walk with us in those, and to trust him to carry us through those hard times even. We need his power for them. Um, we don't need to go read the latest Christian book and do whatever it says. We need to walk with him. Now, Jesus is going to list what he knows about the church of Smyrna, uh, the first thing he's going to list is that he knows their tribulation. Now, Smyrna had it hard. As a city, Smyrna is interesting. They had aligned themselves with the hopes and glory of Rome before it was clear that Rome was going to be the winner. They, uh, they saw in Rome victory even when Rome had military defeats. And they'd always been very loyal to Rome. They actually gave... After a military defeat, the Roman army was marching back, and the, the citizens of Smyrna went out and just gave them their clothes, all the clothes they had. Said, you've got this like, basically naked and foodless army. They went out, fed them, and clothed them. And Rome, Rome never forgot that. Uh, Rome always appreciated Smyrna's dedication to them. Uh, one of the ways that Rome, or I'm sorry, that Smyrna expressed their appreciation to Rome because Rome did a lot for the ancient world. It took the pirates off the sea. It took the brigands off the road. It made the roads paved and traversable without too much fear. And, and Smyrna loved what, what Rome had done. And in order to show their appreciation, they built a temple in 195 BC to the goddess Roma. 
They just created a god to represent Rome. First place this ever happened is in Smyrna, the, church, the, the city this church is in. And they started worshiping Rome. And then over time, what happened was uh, instead of worshiping the goddess Roma, which would represent Rome, they started, repre- they started to worship the one person that would represent Rome, which was the emperor or the Caesar. And so Caesar worship or emperor worship became a part of Asia Minor. First, it was just sort of scattered there. And then eventually Rome said, let's just unify our people and make them all worship. And they did. They passed a law and said, once a year, you have to burn a pinch of incense to Caesar, declare that Caesar is Lord. You see the problem that the Christians had right there. And then you get a little certificate and you can do anything else you want religiously for a year. We don't care what you do religiously except you have to do these two things. Burn the pinch of incense, declare Caesar is Lord. And it was a law. Every Roman had to do that. So when Jesus says, I know your tribulation... It came from them being told they had to worship Caesar, they had to declare Caesar as Lord, or die. That was the alternative, was death. Um, That's kind of interesting. The word for tribulation is thlipsis. It means pressure. It comes from pressure. It's how you would describe what you do to grapes to get the juice out of them. You take them and you would put pressure on them, squeeze it out. It was also used, um, there was a form of execution where they would use this word. And the way the execution worked was you take the criminal, you put them under an insanely heavy weight. And as they'd breathe out, they couldn't, they couldn't lift it. They couldn't get more air in. And so they could only exhale. And pretty soon they'd exhaled all their air, suffocating pressure on top of them, and they would die. And that word, phlipsis, is used to um, describe that form of execution, execution by pressure. And the pressure that the people in Smyrna, the Christians in Smyrna experienced was that they needed to worship Caesar. But it wasn't just, it's not like when a cop sees you speeding and you're going to get a ticket when they pull you over, sort of no matter what, right? They, they caught you at this point and now you're just going to get a ticket, so it doesn't really matter what you do. Um, I mean, you can try being nice and all that stuff, change your outcomes a little. With Rome, it wasn't like that. It was, hey, you don't have your certificate. You didn't worship Caesar. We're going to throw you in prison. We're going to execute you. But at any point along the way, if you want to say Caesar is Lord, we'll let you out of it. Um, And so the test of your loyalty, whether it was to Rome and declaring Caesar was Lord or whether it was to Jesus, went all the way to your death. They were applying that pressure the whole time. And so that's the pressure that, that they were under Uh, I think it is valuable to point out that Jesus knew pressure. Jesus knew pressure. Uh, When he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying, it says that he was sweating and it was like intermingled with blood, like sweating great drops of blood. That's how much stress and pressure he was under. And he prayed a prayer um, where he just said, you know, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. And he was under the pressure of going to the cross to carry all of our sins, but it was going to cost him everything at the time. And so Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know the pressure you're under. And Jesus absolutely knew the pressure they were under. He also says, I know your poverty. 
next part of the verse. Uh, Jesus knew poverty. Jesus said, foxes have holes. Matthew 8, 20. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus went around poor. He had less than probably all of us. I don't know all of us well enough to know that, but probably all of us. He was probably poorer than any of us. Um, The word for poverty used here, oh boy, this one's hard for me to say, tokia, about right. Uh, It comes from a word that means one who cowers. It's basically somebody that's begging. And it was... It was used usually of people that, that my wife's leaving. It's not because she doesn't like it. It's because our son is probably being pretty loud um, in the nursery. It was used for people really that couldn't provide for themselves. Usually if you had some sort of maybe like a missing arm or you were blind or somehow incapable of providing anything for yourself, this is the word that would be used. Um, it was like a beggarly poor and, and they could have used a different word. There's a word for the person that can work and they just barely have enough. You know, slaves are often in this sort of situation. But this word is somebody that's even poorer than that. We don't know exactly why they were so poor. We know they were poor just based on what Jesus says. We know that the early Christians were often of the lower classes. It, it appealed to the poorer people. Um, and there's a good chance, uh, if I were to speculate, that as part of the persecution, as part of people not liking them, when you went to apply to a job, if there's two candidates, one's a Christian and one's not, they say, I'm not going to hire you. Uh, that's a, a form of persecution that has happened to other people groups throughout history. It happened to uh, the Jews in Poland. It was very sad. They became poor. You know, not for any lack. I mean, it's an extremely literate society. It was because of the pressure that the society put on. But I'm sorry, let me clear that up. Extremely literate people group, the Jews, you know, and the pressure that Poland put on them made them physically poor. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the source of poverty, that it was just more persecution. And then Jesus throws a little, little interjection here. He says, but you are rich. And the reason he says that, see, in their tribulation, what the world saw, what the citizens of Rome saw, was these people that refused to follow Roman law, these people that are rebellious. And they also saw, actually, they they called them atheists because they didn't have any idols. They said, oh, you don't have any God because you don't have any idols, right? To worship a God, you have to have an idol, apparently. Who knew? Um, but, But that was what the world saw. And Jesus had told them, no, you're worshiping the true God. And then here for poverty, Jesus wants them to know, like, yes, you are physically poor, but in reality, in heaven, you are very wealthy. You are very rich. And I think it's important for us to keep our eyes on that. In Hebrews, it talks about some of the heroes of faith, and it says that they walked around in dens and caves of the earth. And then it says, of whom the world was not worthy. Like, they are physically poor, but man, they're rich in heaven and they deserve, like, the world doesn't even deserve to have them. And it's like funny because people think, oh, the world needs people like, well, I've made a mistake. I'm going to try to name a celebrity. Uh, Justin Bieber? I, I know that's an old one, but whatever. Um, that's what I have. So, uh, 
you know, the world thinks, well, we need people like that that have been successful on some commercial scale and producing music and entertaining people. And, and God says, no, you guys are being successful where you are in the eyes of heaven. Um, that's that's what, what Smyrna was, very successful in the eyes of heaven. The last uh, thing he says he knows is in verse 9, he says, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The word slander, it implies that uh, what they're saying isn't false. And we have some records of, of uh, the Jews inciting mobs against, say, Paul, for example, and getting him kicked out of cities. For whatever reason, the, the Jewish people in the book of Acts, this isn't in the book of Acts, it's a little after, but they would incite mobs and get Paul and, and other missionaries kicked out of places. And it looks like the same thing's happening here, that uh, God's chosen people, the Jews, who he had shaped their history at this point for a long time. And I mean, they're a nation today because he's continued to shape their history and there's promises to them. Like the Jews are a special and important people. Um, but in, in Smyrna, there are people that are at least saying they're Jews and they are uh, slandering the Christians. They're saying things that aren't true about them. And it's, it's kind of sad for a lot of reasons. The Jews had uh, actually obtained an exemption from the Caesar worship because they couldn't say Caesar was Lord either. And they actually talked Rome into uh, exempting them from that law. And the Christians didn't have it. And then the Jews would, would call the Christians out when they didn't have their certificate. Like, hey, this guy is, is not a Caesar worshiper. Let's, let's get the, the justice going here. And... Um, you know, as Christians, we owe them so much. Uh, but I, I suspect in Smyrna, it would have been really hard to have, well, it, if some Roman citizen, some maybe Greek descent person was to say something wrong about the Christians, that might roll off the back a little easier than if God's chosen people had done it. You know, I think that would be a, a different level of, of insult. Now, Jesus knew slander, just like he knew tribulation, he knew poverty. Um, he knew slander. There are so many things that were slanderously said about him. Like when they told him that uh, he was casting out demons by the prince of demons. Or when they said, oh, you're a blasphemer because you told somebody his sins were forgiven. Um, you know, and, and they, of course, accused him of blasphemy whenever he would say things relating to him being the son of God, being divine. And um, so he knew slander, and he, he knew being falsely accused of things. Verse 10, Jesus is going to give them advice of how to handle what they have gone through and also what they're going to go through. It's surprising how often where you are is not as bad as it's going to get. And I'm not saying that to discourage you, God is going to provide what they need to get through what they're going to go through. Um, it's important for us actually to recognize that we need God's power to get through wherever we are and wherever we're going. So for Smyrna and for some of us, things do get worse for a time. So his advice, verse 10, do not fear. And what can happen so easily is in the middle of a trial, you take your eyes off of God off of him providing you to get through that trial, and you start looking at all the circumstances around you. See, 
There's a time the disciples were in a, a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and they saw something walking on the water. They didn't know what it was. But, uh, but Peter says, you know, Lord, if that's you, tell me to come out there. And so in Matthew uh, chapter 14, starting verse 29, Jesus said, he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water. Wow, that's pretty cool, right? He came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And you think about what Peter did there, is he gets out and he's doing something supernatural. He, he could not walk on water on his own. And I know you all know that, but I had to say it anyways. And he couldn't do it, but Jesus was making it happen. And then when Peter's focus shifted from the Lord to all the circumstance around him, the wind, what the wind was doing with the water, all of that, he starts to sink. And, um, and that's kind of true of us too, that when we're in the middle of a trial, we need to not fear, don't be afraid, don't start focusing on all the, all the circumstances. Keep your focus on the Lord. Um, and it's a command. And some of you are thinking, well, I am an anxious person. I just, fear is my thing. That's how I do it. It's how God made me. Uh, but, and that, some of us probably do have a predisposition toward it. But, this is a command. Do not fear. And the thing is, God provides the resources to keep his commands. When Jesus told Peter to come, Peter didn't have to figure out how to walk on water. All he had to do was try to keep the command. Right? Come. Okay. And all of a sudden, he's walking on water. And when you hear Jesus say, don't be afraid, don't put your eyes on the circumstances, keep them on me instead, all you have to do is try to follow the command. He provides the resources to do it. It doesn't mean you won't fall or fail. It won't be mistakes. Um, Peter, obviously, he started sinking, and then he has a wonderful response to it. He says, Lord, save me. Eyes back on Jesus. He's fine. Right? And that's how we respond to it, too. In Proverbs, it says that uh, the righteous falls seven times and rises again. So if you are a, a fear person, and this is a command where you say, I don't know if I can do it, one, trust God that you can do it. Go for it. Try to follow it. If, if you, all of a sudden you find your eyes on the wind and the waves, the circumstances around you, the tribulation, the poverty, the slander, take them off of that. Back to the Lord. Let Him carry you through it. She says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And that's where it was going to get worse. They're going to be thrown into prison. That you may be tested, and for ten days you'll have tribulation. It's possible that the ten days here are literal. The way prisons worked back then was typically you would take the um, person that you thought was a criminal, put them in prison. They would just be there until there was an execution or some other judgment. Um, but it wasn't like, oh, you're going to prison for two years. That was, that was far less common in the Roman Empire. It was mostly a holding place. They didn't want to pay for you to be in prison. They wouldn't feed you when you were there, even for the short stints. So, um, so that's what's going to happen here. It's going to be thrown into prison, and uh, they'll have tribulation, pressure, probably tribulation to say, Caesar is Lord, right? You say Caesar is Lord, you're out of here. You could get out of this. And then Jesus gives them another command. says, be faithful unto death. 
Now Jesus, he had been faithful unto death. We mentioned Matthew 26 earlier where he prayed. He said, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he left that garden where he prayed that. And he was betrayed by his friend. Taken, tried, falsely accused. Tried again, falsely accused. Beaten, crucified. Um, he was faithful to death. And he gives a promise with it. He says, I will give you the crown of life. Now, normally, we don't think of somebody wanting to give you something after you die being all that great a thing. Um, but in this case, Jesus is talking about for the next life. I will crown you with life. I will put a crown on you made of life. That's what he's saying. Um, because that death, when you're faithful to him, is not the end of you. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We all, I think everybody here has ears. Looking, I think so. Some of your hair is covering, so I'm not sure, but I think so. And so this is a command for us. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is, listen to what Jesus says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There's an old saying says, born once, die twice, born twice, die once. And the idea is, if you are born physically, then what you have ahead of you is a physical death and also to be spiritually dead. So two deaths ahead of you. But if you are born physically and then you are born spiritually, born of God, you will go through the physical death. That still happens. But then spiritually live forever. Only one, only one death. The second death mentioned here is, is that spiritual death. Um, and the description is in Revelation 20. It is not pretty. Uh, verses 14 and 15. It says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So the second death Jesus is talking about is, is this one, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the question that would be on your mind is, is two things, and they're the same question. Who's this person that conquers that Jesus is talking about in verse 11? And then who is this person that is written in the book of life in Revelation 20, 15? Going to 1 John chapter 5, it tells us everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Okay, so believing that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus died for your sins, that he wants to forgive you, and accepting that into your life, accepting that free gift, that's a spiritual birth. That'll, that'll be spiritual birth for you. He goes on in, in 1 John chapter 5 verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And that word overcomes is actually the same word that is conquers uh, in the last one. The Greek is the same word. Uh, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So 
Again, believing, being born of God, that makes you a conqueror, makes you an overcomer, because he is greater than the world. And then one more verse, 1 John 5, 13. John wants people to be sure they know when they're saved. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So to be written in the Lamb's book of life is based on your accepting of salvation through Jesus. And that is the criteria. That's, that's when you get pinned in there. Um, and so it's, it's of the utmost importance to do it. I want to close just looking over the passage we looked at um, and just remind people that, one, Jesus is the one true God. He has gone through everything that the church in Smyrna was going through. He knows what we go through. He wants to walk in it. He wants to meet us where we are in that. Um, We are unique. We have our unique struggles, and he knows and understands them and wants to be there and provide his power to get through them and out of them and to carry us into faithfulness, unto death, into the next life. Like That is what he wants for our lives. And don't let fear or don't let the circumstances around you take your attention off of him um, when you're going through a trial. Don't, don't pay attention to those because he has the power to get us through it. Um, and not only for this life, but power to get us into the next life. So with that, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the church in Smyrna who is an example And um, we just ask for you to work in our hearts and have us have that kind of faithfulness and for you to, you know, do what you will with us, but to to keep us faithful and in close fellowship with you. And and we ask for you to work in our church your way, however you want to do it. Um, We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.